Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a book on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Manon Garcia, the author of We Are Not Born Submissive, How Patriarchy Shapes Women's Lives, published this year, 2021, by Princeton University Press. The book was originally published in 2018 by Clément as On ne n'est pas soumise, on ne devient, and I apologize very much for my accent. Uh, my recent study of Dutch has done terrible things to my vowels. I can't speak Italian anymore either. I'm sorry. Uh, so hello, Manon, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is wonderful to talk to you. Uh, and so you are in Cambridge this morning. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing okay. Um, it's uh, It's been a wild ride um, this last uh, year, but it, it starts looking like things are getting better. So it's great. I look forward to that. Yeah. And you'll soon be um, relocating to New Haven where you are taking up a job as an assistant professor. Yeah. I will start as an assistant professor at Yale um, next month. Congratulations on that. That's great news. Um, And and well-deserved and it fits really is this book is a bit of a sensation amongst um, theorists and philosophers. It's an ambitious work of theory the kind we just don't see that much, you know, that it does that doesn't happen enough. Um, and I really I want to start by saying to you and to all of our listeners how much I loved it. I loved it. It was deeply pleasurable to read something so smart and engaging, but actually just very well read and easy to read. Um, you're engaging with some of the most difficult works of the 20th century and 19th and 20th centuries. And it, it was good, you know, uh, and, and I was fine. I just like oh yes now I finally understand Heidegger thank you uh, so it's it's just delightful and I cannot cannot say enough that how much I enjoyed it so thank you thank you very much uh, yeah so like what what led you to write this book how did this work happen so this book is actually a part of my dissertation so I I did my uh, studies in philosophy in France and um, I. I don't know. I, I loved philosophy, but at the same time, I was mad at philosophy for a lot of reasons. And at some point, I thought, okay, like I'm 
maybe I should stop doing philosophy. But there was this question that I kept going back to, which was, why do women submit to men? Um, and I don't know, it seems, it seems basic, but I saw it in so many instances in myself, in other people. I was very interested in um, my grandmother, for instance, who's a very strong woman, and at the same time, who's been a housewife and who's served everyone her whole life and who seems to resent it, but also takes pleasure from it. So I was very interested in trying to figure out what was going on there. And so I wrote this dissertation and it took me years and, and French dissertations are way um, broader than American dissertations. So my dissertations ended up being 800 pages long. Um, and so my idea was, okay, I need to look at submission in all the possible different ways with a lot of different literatures. And, and, and so that, so that's what I did. And, uh, I defended my dissertation in July, uh, 2017. And three months later, the Weinstein scandal popped up and the Me Too movement. And it was very interesting for me because I had, worked on women's submission for eight years already and all through my dissertation people told me that feminism was not an important topic anymore that it was over that um maybe if i were doing more gender studies it would be uh but it, it seemed like i i was really going against the mainstream and suddenly the weinstein affair happened and in france there was no, there had been no book in feminist philosophy written recently. And my dissertation advisor said during my defense that it was the first uh, dissertation in feminist philosophy defended at La Sorbonne in the history of La Sorbonne. So, which is crazy compared to what's going on in the US, but we can talk about this more. But so here I was having an expertise on a topic on which in philosophy, no one had an expertise in France. And um, as a, an important part of my dissertation, well, a whole chapter out of eight was devoted to the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir. And I had been thinking about how she's misperceived in France and how people don't understand that she's a philosopher and that I should someday write a book about it. And so the Me Too movement happened and I thought, okay, like, this is the perfect time to not publish my dissertation as a whole, but publish an like readable version of the chapter on Beauvoir as a book to show A, what's going on with woman submission and B, that Beauvoir is a philosopher. And, and so that's how it started. And of course, we can talk more about this, but I, I translated the French version of the book into English and it was more of an adaptation because of course the norms of public discourse are very different. For instance, um, if you talk about Penelope in France and people read your book and they, and you talk about Penelope waiting, everyone knows what you're talking about. Everyone with a high school degree, not maybe not everyone, but like it's it's something you can expect people to know. And so there are a lot of references like this that I had to explicate. And also I think the writing style is a bit more different that um, 
English readers are more used to being walked through the different steps that you take. So, so that's, um, so, so I rewrote a bit, but yeah, that's how the book happened. Oh, wow. I'm, 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 I'm reeling the, the first piece of feminist philosophy. What on, how is, how is that possible? So I think it's very complicated. First, I think there's like serious misogyny in the philosophical world everywhere and in France in particular. Mm -hmm. And there was a very big effort of gatekeeping. So mm -hmm. I think very important writers like Michel Luda for Sarah Kaufman or um, were pushed away from philosophy or were put in a situation where it was not possible for them to do their work. And so mm -hmm. I think the reason why it was possible for me to write a PhD in feminist philosophy is because there were people before me who fought very hard mm -hmm. for it to be possible. Uh, among them, my dissertation advisor, Sandra Logier, and uh, the person with whom I worked during my master's, who was uh, Elsa Dorlan. And I think Elsa Dorlan's work was important enough that people were like, okay, we need to take this seriously inside philosophy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, good, good, good then uh, that this happened. It is just baffling. Um, and I think that there's this other piece, um, you know, that people are telling you feminism is over. We're done with feminist theory. We don't write women's, like, we don't write about women anymore. We talk about gender and we talk about queer theory. And that was really nice. That's a very nice thing to see because the category of woman has not gone away. Right. And, and so like addressing that was, I think, uh, was really good. And there was this point where I was thinking like, Oh, this is brave. And that's nonsense that I should think that just writing about being a woman and what that means is brave. But I, I still kind of think that. Um, I mean, I think there are very good reasons to have been wary of the second wave feminist conceptualization of womanhood and that it was not inclusive enough. But I think I'm, I'm very convinced by Beauvoir's argument or Beauvoir's quote in The Second Sex when she mm -hmm. says, when we walk in the street, we see men and we see women. And it doesn't say, it doesn't have to say anything about their biological identity or, and, and it, do, it doesn't mean that sometimes we fail in identifying if people are uh, men or women or that at her time, um, the possibility that people didn't want to be identified as either a man or woman was really something important. But the reality is that there are a lot of people that we run into in the streets that we consider women and that by this, they share certain um, social norms that are applied to them. Mm -hmm. All right. You, um, you have a short, extremely useful, very short and very useful preface in which you lay out kind of the rationale and the purpose for the book. And I'm just going to read the last paragraph now. Quote, this book aims to analyze these apparent contradictions with the help of philosophy, especially the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir. It does not seek to offer ready-made answers or solutions, but rather to show the complexity of the world and of lived experiences. What is at stake is not to determine once and for all whether women are victims or fighters, whether men are guilty or not, whether what matters is the individual or the social structure. On the contrary, to examine women's submission to men is to study the complex ways in which gender hierarchies in society shape women's experiences. All right, so we know where we are. 
This is a philosophical approach to one of the most enduring situations in human society, which is ongoing gender hierarchy. Um, and I, I, that's really well done. So let's start here. You explore some questions about the benefits of exploring submission at all, noting that most feminists and feminist theory avoids it. And I'm, I'm curious why you think that um, why it is you that so many feminists are squeamish about this topic. So I think I, I'm a bit guilty of saying here, like what I do is extremely original. It's not that original, you know, but what I want to say is that I think there's been a focus and a right focus on what men do to women. And so either on what they do or on what it does to women. But I think it's very important to look at what women do in this and to to have a, a prospect a, a perspective on their agency and i think a lot of people are writing about this right now i think my work is somewhat somewhat related to older works in relational autonomy just that we uh look at the topic in a different way and what i find very interesting is to look at the lived experience of submission, because for instance, it shows us that we take submission to be passive, whereas actually to submit to men is to do a lot of things and that it's a lot of work. And I think this is a very important thing. And another point that was very important to me uh, with the submission prism was to say, um, this is wrong to think that only other women submit to men. And I take it, it, it was very strong for me as a French person because some, some people may know that France really has a problem with Islam. And, um, one form that it takes is to constantly explain that the problem with Islam is that, um, Muslim women are submissive or are submitted. And so when I said I was working on women's submission, my, the whole time people asked me, oh, so you're working about the veil. And I was not working about the veil. I mean, the veil may be one of the instances of what I'm talking about, but not more than all of my friends who are eating uh, steamed zucchini to make sure to be super sexy in their bathing suit or uh, who feel like they have to do plastic surgery or so there are so many forms that women's submission takes. And so I think having one concept to look at this allows to see that these are just the forms that women's submission mm -hmm. to men take. This might be a good time actually, before we get any farther to kind of, um, to, dis, to de, uh, describe this and kind of define it. So your first chapter, you explore submission vis-a-vis -vis freedom and domination. And uh, so what do you mean by submission? What is, what is this? So the way I define it is that submission is the attitude or the action of not actively resist the, uh, a hierarchical power exerted on you. And so... What I mean by that is that I think we have a tendency when we think about domination to conflate two meanings that domination can have. Domination can be a relationship between two people, for instance, 
or an action of one person over another one. And I take it that when we look at the relation of domination, because of this mixing of meaning, we just look at what the dominant does to the dominated. But what I want to say is that in this relationship, there is also what the dominated does. And, and this is what I call submission. That like, as long as the dominated does not actively resist this relationship, then what they do can be understood under the term of submission. Right. And then what distinguishes women from each other is the degree of submission. There are not women who are submit there are not submissive women and dominant women being being that submission is part of the human condition or the female condition. Yes, because I think that this is where um my distinction between domination and, and submission is too um minimal is that of course what shapes the relations of domination are also structures of domination. And that I take it that because of patriarchy, women are systematically in a domination relation with other men, and therefore they can resist it more or less. And But at the end of the day, the, the social norms are, of patriarchy are so strong that it is impossible to absolutely not be uh, normed and to not be shaped by patriarchy. And But I think that once we recognize this, then we need to account for a non-moralized account of submission. Because, of course, the reason why we see submission only in other people is that it's because we're um, influenced by the discourse of, freedom is what you should want and mm -hmm. if you don't actively fight for your freedom then you're you're acting in a morally wrong way etc and so th therefore it sounds like if you submit it's that you're acting in a morally wrong way and so no one wants to be wrong like that um but i i take it that once we understand that we can't free ourselves completely from patriarchy, then we have a basis to think about emancipation in a productive way. All right. Yeah, and and it's we'll we'll get more into this, but I want to note that um, admitting to submission is not just immoral, but it's it's unnatural, right? There's this idea that there is something um, humans are meant to be. We are all born equal. We are all uh, part of being. Human is the pursuit of happiness, the doing what we want, self-determination. And in the U.S., perhaps even more than other places, we have this idea that like the rugged individual who goes off to find their own life is the pinnacle of human existence. And that's what we're here for. Yes. So that's a part of my reflection. Of course, I was deeply influenced by um, Carol Pateman and um, her work about how liberal ideas of freedom are deeply sexist, right? And and in general, like she's not the only one to have written about this. And I also, uh, part of my studies, I studied economics and I studied feminist economics a lot and feminist uh, history of economic thought. And it was very clear how women were not taken into account and how the form of um agency or rationality that women have has been seen as abnormal um but so of course we think okay we're born free and equal why are we not 
still free and equal. And so that's in a way, so, and, and that's, you know, where Rousseau starts from in the social contract, right? Uh, that he asks, he says, uh, men are, are born free and yet they, they live in, in, um, I don't know how you translate it, but they, they, they're not free anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a way that was my starting point. But then I realized the problem with the question that Rousseau asks is to think that humans are born free. And that's where I think Heidegger is very useful. Um, we're not going to fully explain um, how it works here, but it was very important for me to bring up Heidegger because I think first, like he was very important for Beauvoir's thinking, but it is a very important way to address this common sense idea that we have that we're born free. And I think you can explain how Heidegger thinks it is wrong without doing it in a obscure Heideggerian way. Sure. Um, and I want to just make sure we have this point clear that seeing submission as kind of natural in women is essential to permit the historically constant position of male domination, right? Um, humans are born free and equal, which makes submission immoral, as you noted. But if women choose their submission, if it's natural, if it props up in the natural agreement, um, and the harmony of heterosexual pairings, as Rousseau would want us to believe, then it's not unjust or immoral, right? Then it's just good. Yeah, Natural. so that's also a response to your question about feminists uh, who have not talked about this much, is because, of course, when we talk about women being submissive, it looks like we're agreeing to a natural submissive condition of women. And so this argument of women's submissiveness has been used against women to say either that their uh, subjection was natural and normal and that nothing should do against it, that it was a good state of the world, or that they were guilty of not wanting freedom. And so, and these are two different arguments, but I wanted to say, well, no, we can look at this issue without falling in either of those traps. So I don't think that women are naturally submissive. And I do not think either that they're fully morally responsible for their submission as something wrong that they would be doing. Right. Okay. Um, so then there's this, then we look at the problem without any judgment or, and we figure out what's going on. Um, you managed to rehabilitate Catherine McKinnon for me. Um, which is really impressive. I've been angry at her since some sometime in the eighties, and um, this was <laughs> this was really nice. And I would like to walk through um, the, the idea of the the I think the idea that male that men are fundamentally physically dominant, right? That like me, that men are stronger than women. Men uh, dominate women, and one of the places where this is most clear is in the in sexual intercourse, right? So sexual intercourse equals vaginal penetration. It begins when the penis enters the vagina. It ends when the men orgasms. And so what does this definition of sex and like the sex act do for our understanding of gender relations? So that's a, that's a um, large huge, question. I'm actually question. Uh, finishing a, a book about um, sexual consent right now. So I'm, I'm deep uh, in, in this question. Well, I, I don't know if this metaphor is very good right now. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I happen to be a huge fan of Catherine McKinnon. I disagree um, 
with her on on some things but i think and and i think she yeah i think she changed the world i think we can say it like that um yes. i think she sure. changed the way we look at the world and and but i do think that indeed uh sexual intercourse is a place where we see very well the weight of gender norms on how we can exert our freedom because if we think that um sexual intercourse is penetration if we think that it starts and ends with um male desire if we think that what is sexy about it is a sort of display of violence and aggression and if we think that a woman who's good in bed is someone who looks like she appreciates what the man is doing mm-hmm. and moves a little bit but not too much right <laughs> we we all have these um these I, i i don't know maybe it was stronger in in france than it was in the us but when i grew up I, in middle school etc i remember this trope of the um uh they they used to call it um starfish so how do you call it the the stars that you have inside the ocean mm-hmm. say starfish. this is what you don't want to be in bed when you're a woman <laughs> like it was called the étoile de mer all the time to say oh yeah women who don't move during uh sex they're really like not good in bed but at the same time it showed something about what women were expected to do they were expected to receive and show appreciation but not do much more than that because then otherwise you're slut obviously yeah. and so um i think obviously. it shows something about what is expected of women they have to do something but to do something that makes them look like they're doing nothing and that such that men can exert their violence and their masculinity in a way that is very solipsistic I think. Um yeah. So dominance is at the heart of men's sexuality then. Like male dominance, female appreciation. Um Yeah, and I think I think McKinnon makes a point that is crucial is to say we should look at sex as one of the parts of the world, but not as a distinctive part of the world. And in a way like sex is where male domination takes a form that allows it to perpetuate itself etc but there are many other um uh spheres where it's the case what mckinnon was really strongly going against was the idea that there was a private sphere where there we would love each other and there would be no um uh structures of domination and submission and say well in sex and everywhere else what masculinity is is coded as dominance and or Yeah, yeah, is not coded what masculinity is is dominance and what femininity is is submission. Right. I mean, she goes to a real like the radical place that the masculine feminine distinction precedes men and women. It's Exactly. So I think that maybe where I'm more of a Beauvoirian than uh I'm a McKinnonite in what I I deeply believe because I I think there there are some flaws in looking at the world like that but McKinnon is very explicit about the fact that she's not looking for uh providing a narrative of how things came to happen 
it's not it, it's not to say well there was dominance and submission and we said though these dominance will be men and these submissive will be women what she means is that what men and women are today is less important than the fact that the men belong to the dominant are the dominance and that the women are the submissive. Yeah. Like there's this, co- there's this category of people who are dominant and yeah. they are the powerful creatures and they are masculine and they are men. And that's the category. That's what we constitute them is. And there we are. Right. And so I think it's actually the moment to make a distinction that seems important for me, which is that a lot of men tell me when I present my work, Oh, but I submit to my wife, you know, like she's the one. And one example that they take is that they say she's the one who decides where we go on vacation, who books everything, who chooses the <laughs> hotels, etc. So, of course, I, I think as a woman, I find it funny because you really have to be a man to think that um, booking the entire trip for the entire family is a sign that right. you're really in power. Um, but yeah. I think a lot of men feel like in their relationship, they're dominated sometimes. But I think there's a very big difference between being dominated temporarily in a way that can be reverted and in a way that is not structured by social structures of domination and being dominated when this domination is layered has a the additional layer of social domination um and so i i think you need to be a woman to experience real submission yeah that's i'm in charge of the household because i'm the one who has to do the grocery shopping yeah Yeah. Yeah, only a man would think yes um all right so we see the relationship here like natural legal descriptive constructed all of these things between femininity and submission yes um, but where does this take it? Is it possible to be a woman without being submissive? And how do we sort that out? And I, you would tell us that we sort this out by going to Simone de Beauvoir, right? Um, yes. So I think, um, of course, I, I can't explain the entire argument here. But one thing that is crucial in Beauvoir is her concept of situation, right? That I explain at length in the book, where she says, we are socially situated. We have a certain place in society that shapes what we can do. It doesn't mean that it determines it, but it shapes the, the, the form that our freedom can take. And for the people who think, oh, yeah, like uh, Sartre and Beauvoir, they think the same way. Beauvoir is only applying the ideas of Sartre. That's where they really disagree because Sartre has a sort of metaphysical view that is saying all human beings are free in the same way, or at least that's what he he affirms in being in nothingness, and he changes his view later on to fit more the view that she has, actually. But so he says, yeah, we're, we're metaphysically free. And she shows in her memoirs that they have a big fight about it, because she tells her, she tells him, you can't reasonably think that, a slave has the same level of freedom as you or that a woman in a harem has the, the same uh, degree of freedom as me. And um, so, yeah, it's an oriental trope. We could talk more about this. But um, but what she does in the second sex is to say, 
this situation shapes our freedom in such a way that what Sartre called mauvaise foi or bad faith or, or insincerity for, for people who are not familiar with this uh, vocabulary is not as Sartre thought to pretend you're not free, but it is to pretend you're not socially situated. She says for a woman pretending she's not a woman is a form of insincerity and it, it prevents her from being authentically free. And and she and so there's that there's this concept of situation that is absolutely crucial to understand the lived experience of women. And then there's her concept, which is linked to this, her conception of freedom as something that you can gain, but that you don't have. So it's it's a, a possibility in a way that you have, but you have. So that's an existentialist conception of freedom to say it's your existence that um is free and that demonstrates that that is the occasion for you to be free you're not born free and so if you understand this then you understand that the situation of women is to be born in such a way that the destiny that is prepared for them is submission then you can live in a way where you fight this destiny and and where there is a possibility of a certain degree of emancipation, and I mean, Beauvoir is a very good example of the emancipation mm-hmm. she's calling for, mm-hmm. but when you're born in a certain situation with a certain destiny, there's only so much you can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important because it shows that we can have some individual... Um, searches for freedom, but at the end of the day, real freedom can only be um, made possible by social and institutional changes. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Yeah. And this is, I mean, anthropologists talk about the flexible cage of culture here that, you know, and and Simone de Beauvoir talks about it in a a different, in a a very personal way um, as well, you know, because so much of her philosophy is, is, reads his autobiography. It's interesting that she anyway, but I want to just talk for a second. I want to step back and talk about your relationship with Simone de Beauvoir because um, she has fallen out of fashion in a way that um, is is interesting in and itself, right? And I think tells us something about modern feminism. Um, but you clearly you you also you rehabilitate her and you really use her work. And I want to know, um, you know, when like how long? What is, what's up with you and her? Like, when did you first meet her? Where were you? How did you start reading her? So it's actually very interesting. I read um, the first volume of her memoirs because it was assigned to me at school when I was 13, I think. <laughs> and I was, I loved that book. It's it's so fantastic. And I really wish all 13-year-olds, uh, especially girls, could read this because it is very enthusiastic about the world and, and it's a, a narrative of discovery and freedom. And I, I really loved it. But, and I think I may have reread it when I was in high school. Uh, but then I, that's all I've read of her. And I remember one summer when I was 18, I tried to read the second fact and I probably read the introduction. I had almost done no philosophy at this time or very little and I I read the introduction and maybe the biology chapter and I was like what is going on (laughs) it's it's interesting but it's so long and I don't really understand 
where it's going and and so I stopped and then what happened is that um I I started doing philosophy and I and I discovered feminist um like feminist philosophy from the US and I thought through Elsa Dorlan mostly that I was mentioning earlier and so I thought oh okay like I I want to work at a sort of convergence of Carol Pateman and Rousseau and and look at um contemporary um uh American feminists and then I I went to this talk by this woman called Nancy Bauer and I knew that she was a badass feminist and and feminist philosopher and she was talking about Beauvoir and I thought, wow, shit, it looks like Beauvoir talked exactly about what I'm interested in, but in a way better way. So A, how did I not read uh, The Second Sex so far? And B, maybe what I wanted to do has been done. And um, and so I, I read The Second Sex and, and I had a moment of deep despair because I thought that. I thought, okay, like a lot of the things I wanted to say are here already, but I realized it was not exactly true and at least not the way she was perceived. And so I decided to try to go work with Nancy Bauer. And so that's how I ended up working, going to the US in the first place is because I thought, okay, I want to work on Beauvoir and there is not one person doing philosophy and knowing Beauvoir in France. So I have to cross the ocean to go work on Beauvoir. So I think it's very interesting in terms of history of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's how I, I started. And, and then I read everything she's ever written. And, and, and I think it is so interesting, the reception of, of Simone de Beauvoir, because it's really all the possible ways in which women's work can be not received or can be... Um, despised or can be it's it's so interesting i really recommend um reading the biography written by kate kirkpatrick that came out uh last year or two years ago called uh becoming Beauvoir because it really explains how she was constantly confronted to like a misogyny in the reception and in france really people think she's old school and not sexy and not and and she's just a like servant and it's it's really um but i think also the feminists have really um undermined her influence on their work and i mean butler was very clear early in her career about how important Beauvoir was for her but there are so many people who were deeply influenced by her and by her work and and it's been erased and one thing, for instance, that I find super interesting is that we don't talk much about the link between Beauvoir and Fanon. We always think that Fanon is influenced by Sartre, right? Mm-hmm. But what is super clear now, and, and people have worked on this, is that the entire conception of freedom and situation that is in uh, black skin, white math is taken almost word for word from the second sex and Fanon had read the second sex and engaged in it. And it had nothing to do with Sartre's conception of freedom. And so I think it's very interesting to see Beauvoir's conception of freedom was heavily influenced by Du Bois and by Richard Wright and by her trip she took in the U.S. and, and where, because she was friends with Richard Wright, she 
became, she read a lot about race in the U.S. And that's how it helped her conceive about the oppression of women. But then it was reused by uh, Fanon and it deeply influenced the way race was thought about. But this kind of intellectual history has been completely erased. Yeah, it, it, it's astounding how quickly she disappeared. And it's, it seems easy to just be like, oh, misogyny, but but really, misogyny, like really, this is the patriarchy at work, right? Um, and, you know, you you urge that we must think with Beauvoir. And I think that's a really nice way to spend, to think about what we're doing, right? That we are thinking with her when we're reading this. Um, also, I've got to say, being assigned Simone de Beauvoir in middle school is so French. I don't even, like, that is like Eurovision 2021 level France, right? <laughs> like, that is amazing. I'm... Very. That is not what I was reading in American middle school. I will tell you that. Uh, very jealous. Uh, cool. All yeah, right. that's true. No, of course, of course. It, and and I think my book also is a testimony of a difference of education. So I I um I felt really guilty recently because I haven't engaged enough with the literature on relational autonomy, and and so it's it's a, a field of analytic philosophy that developed over the last 20 years about how can we rethink autonomy for feminists and it is great but i i come from a world where we do history of philosophy and where we're we're way less engaging with small conversations than we're trying to relook at very broad philosophical ideas etc and so it means that sometimes you reinvent the wheel and, or or you, you reinvent something that has already been talked about. But yeah, I, I think my book is also a sign of a certain philosophical bringing. Sure. Well, and we, I mean, of course it is. Right. Um, so, you know, if we think about the second sex as essential, pun intended, for understanding the relationship between women as a category and submission, right? The idea that one, you know, the very famous um, one is not born, right? That becomes it. Um, one is not born, but becomes a woman, right? So, and that's the situation. Um, so, this Beauvoirian concept of situation is crucial for understanding the problem of women's submission because it shows that gender shapes how individuals are in the world and what they can do, without assuming that gender has to do with nature. Being a woman is different from being a man, not because there is an essential difference between human males and human fe- females but because men and women are not situated in the same way in society and thus cannot exert their freedom in the same way. That's a quote from you, obviously. Um, so I, I want to get there that I want to, I want us to just have that on the table so we can say, we can talk about that if submission is not in nature, but appears to women as a destiny to be a woman is to be in a situation where submission appears to be a destiny. Um, so, so how did, how does, how does that work? How is submission a destiny for women? Such a good question. So I think it works in many different ways. It works in education. So that's one thing that I find very funny. Uh, Now everyone agrees that gendered education is a real thing, but everything about gendered education is in the first two chapters of the second volume of The Second Sex. She explained all of this already. She showed how it works and and what kinds of toys and what kinds of activities. Like it's in 1949, and she everything was there already. So that's that shows her modernity. But um, so yes, 
there's a part of it that is through education and that we treat girls in a certain way. We tell them to not hurt themselves. We tell them to be quiet. We read them stories about Prince Charming and we, um, and, and there are all these, so she explains how this eroticism comes to, to exist where what is erotic is being passive and being taken and, and the role of culture and this myth of um, uh, having waited and having a man that comes and takes you and, and, and all these myths and how it shapes really the, the lived existence of girls and then of young women and then of women. But there are also institutional things, right? Um, so when she was writing, women were kind of expected to take care of the household. And she explains how cleaning and cooking are things that put you in a sort of repetitive task or of finding, of fighting negative things that like the men, they go to work and, and, well, assuming they're not um, working in a factory where they do the same task over and over again, but the very fact that they're paid a salary for this allows them to have some sort of what she calls a transcendence, that, that they can project themselves in the world. Whereas if what you only do is clean, which is fight the dirt, fight the, the mess, fight, you fight negativity nonstop, and it's an endless um, fight, so you don't create anything, and so there is a sort of um, what she calls an imminence that prevents women from creating or from from throwing themselves uh, in the world. And so, institutions, economic status, upbringing, uh, books, uh, psychology, all of this work together to tell women that. What they should do is be nice, is love a man that will give meaning to their lives. So we can talk more about love, but I think that's a very important part of women's submission. And, and that they're a sort of second degree people in the sense that what gives meaning to them is external to them. So it's having kids, having a husband, whereas for men, what gives meaning to their lives is themselves and and i think that's something that we all to a certain degree feel and and one very stupid or, or mundane example is all these girls that were asked so i think it's changing a bit now but for the longest time when they were asked about their future they were asked about who they would marry or how many kids they would have rather and and men were asked if they wanted to be astronauts so of course if you ask this over and over again it shapes what you think you can expect from the world and and so a metaphor that i like to use is a metaphor of when you go hiking in the mountains and i also use it because Beauvoir was a very good hiker and a very impressive one and so i think it's it's faithful to her to use it but when you walk in the mount mountains you very often have a path and so you, the, the normal way to go is to just walk on this path. But sometimes you can also take a shortcut and, and go in the wild. And sometimes you even have a, a sort of machete and you, you create a path for yourself. But we all know that if you do that, it takes much more energy, much more time. It's much more difficult. 
The problem is that for men, the path leads to freedom. And for women, the path leads to submission. So yes, women can decide to go with their machidi and, and make paths for themselves that are off the beaten path. But this comes at an incredible cost. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and a cost that men will simply never have. Um, let's talk about um, Simone, Simone de Beauvoir's source material a little bit, um, because she does this work that no one else is doing at this point. And part of it is because of who she talks to. Right. Um, and I want to I would like to know, like, how does she get to how does she get to her points? Like, and, and why is that useful? So, I think, as I uh, mentioned earlier, that her trip to the U.S. in 1947 is really important in how she comes to conceive of gender, um, because she does, uh, she's very good friend with Richard Wright, and she reads a lot about uh, race in America at this time. She reads Gernot Merdol, she, I, I suspect that she reads Du Bois, and so there's a lot of influence and and I think like the theory of the veil in Du Bois is very important for to understand some of the things that she argues in the second sex so I think this is very important but I also think that she should be credited for her originality in a moment where yes she she explains very clearly in her memoirs at the moment of the war she stops being fully individualistic in her um, thinking about the world. And she um, converts to existentialism, but not to self-existentialism. She converts to Kierkegaard. She starts reading Kierkegaard, which is very important for her. And she starts reading Heidegger, which is also very important for her. And she explains very clearly, she says, I love Hegel. It's well-written. It's exciting, etc." But because of the war, I see that I am in a world with others and that it counts. And she had spent the 30s, in the 30s, she had read Rosa Luxemburg, she had read Marx, she had read Engels. And this deeply influenced her. And it's very interesting to see, she explains that the difference between Sartre and her is that she reads everything she finds in philosophy and he thinks he already knows. And or or that at least like it's not important for his ideas. So he's very curious about the literature and the films, etc. But about philosophy, he only reads what goes in his direction. And she's much more um, like reading different things. And she says it's very interesting. She says in her memoirs, that's why I'm not a philosopher. And that's why I'm just someone I, I'm just a good philosophy teacher because I can read very different things and explain what they think and 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 Sartre, he's a real philosopher, and so he's not interested in what other people think. And so I think this is also a very important gendered way of thinking about philosophy. But yes, I think she she managed to make the phenomenology tradition talk with the Marxist tradition, and mm-hmm. and in a way that has been overlooked for a very long time. And I'm. I think I, I'm not uh, paying my respect enough, but there are, there are very important women that preceded me. Like there's Nancy Bauer, but also Sonia Crooks had a very like tremendous importance in showing the political dimension of Beauvoir's thoughts. And it's 
precisely because she articulates existentialism, phenomenology, and Marxism in a very, she appropriates these three traditions mm -hmm. and proposes something that makes sense of the world. Sure. I think also it's important to note that she talks to a lot of women, that she comes at it from this very autobiographical position, and she talks about the lived experience of women. So, Yes, of course. And she talks of women also that are not from her social class. And so that's, that's what I think, that's where I think she, she was um, a bit hastily portrayed when she was seen as like this uh, second wave feminist that is a bourgeois and just talked about Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And it's not true. She was, uh, she was teaching for, um, uh, women who didn't know how to read in, in Belleville, uh, during the thirties. And she's, she's very engaged with talking to prostitutes and talking to as many women as she can. And so she has this sort of very encyclopedic way of looking at the world. She thinks I need to talk to everyone and to read every book. And at the, at the time, it's not completely crazy to still have this fantasy. And so she goes to the National Library in France and she said, and she, she decides to read everything that's been written about women. And at the time, you can. There were so little that had been written about women in different fields that she could really read everything that had been written about women that was at the National Library. So she tried to talk to as many women as possible and to read as many things as possible. So, of course, she still has huge biases, um, but there is a sort of encyclopedic desire to, to say something about womanhood. And I think... Of course, like Catherine Gines uh, uh, pointed that um, there's a problem in her distinction between women and blacks, because it sounds like there can't be black women. And, it's, and that's also what happens when she distinguishes between women and workers. It sounds like women can't be workers. And, and so, yes, there is a problem in her intersectionality. However, I think it's so interesting that all around the world, the reason why this book was such a bestseller is that you, you see it in her correspondence. Women in Indonesia, in Southern Africa, in Chile, in Brazil, in Japan felt like she was talking to exactly what they were going through. And I, and I was very surprised. I, I taught the second sex at University of Chicago two years ago. And I didn't expect that my female students would be so moved by it. They really, all of them, they told me, it feels like she's been in my head my whole life. And, and there are overachieving American girls who were told that they can do whatever they want. And that's what, that's how they end up being undergrads at UChicago. And, and they, they had very different racial bringings, etc. All of them said, I feel like she's been in my head my whole life. Yeah. I, I remember that exact feeling. Oh, I felt saying it was really wonderful. So, um, you you used like you think with Simone here and getting us to this position where we see um, where you argue that submission is a result of women's alienation, right? Yeah. Can you talk about that? What, how is that? So alienation means literally in Latin like being made other. 
And and that's a, a very important part of how um, Beauvoir thinks about what we now call gender. And so she thinks that men are the have the power to define women in a way that is good for them, for, for men. And, and that the way they do that is that they, they're, the problem of men is that they want women to recognize them and love them without having to reciprocate this recognition and this love. And that, because if they're friends with other men, then they have to be on an equal footing. And so she explains that women are, through myth and through culture, and are defined as the other with a capital O, such that you're still a human, but you're a sort of inferior human that is high enough, like enough of a human to give recognition to the man, so that when they say, like, you're great, you're amazing, I love you, it makes them feel good, but that they're not competition. And so in a way, like, it's a bit better than having a dog that uh, barks when you arrive home, um, but it's still not as demanding as having a true friend that you recognize, that you engage with, to whom you have moral obligations. And, and I think there's something very true in this explanation on, of how men treat women or how men view women. I think... Um, this is one of the reasons why I, I know that a lot of women are very puzzled that men they have sex with are rude to them. And they think, I've, I've heard that so many times women say, if we had been just friends or even like sheer acquaintances, he would have treated me with more respect. And I think the reason why a lot of men feel like they don't have to be polite to women is that they don't see women as on exactly the same footing as them. And so, of course, it's changing slowly. And I'm sure that having a female vice president symbolically changes a lot of things. And But there's still something about the fact that women are other, that the real competition, for instance, is with other men, is not with normal women. No, and women then become the capital O, uh, capital o other, right, and um, exist to kind of provide and prop up. So what's the relationship there with sexual objectification? Yes, so one part of being the other, one, one function that men want women to perform is to um, bring them sexual satisfaction. And so that women have been coded in a way that is very contradictory. So I think that's something very interesting in, in what Beauvoir says is that women have been coded in ways that can't uh, be fulfilled. You can't both be a mom and a whore. Like you, you can't do both. But men conceive of women as the figure of the mom and the figure of the whore and the figure of sexual availability. But at the same time, uh, they need to feel like having seduced a woman is an act of is an act that shows how good a man you are. So women cannot be willing to have sex because otherwise, where's your bravery in in managing to to have sex with women? So there is a sexual objectification. Women are seen as what you want 
to fuck, to take uh, McKinnon's um, uh, expression where she says like man fucks woman. That's that's what that's how men represent women to themselves. But at the same time, and I think it's very interesting. She shows that this is so disappointing for men because then if the woman says yes, or if the woman lets them have sex with uh, with them, then the object of their desire disappears. And it means that, so, so there's something deeply disappointing in male sexuality through this construction of uh, women as an other. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reason why men should be allies with women is that they would have much better sex and much better, even effective lives if they were in exchange as equal. All right. Yeah, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Um, but there, there's, it's almost not possible when we see, or it certainly isn't possible right now when, so women, the submission is a result of women's alienation, which occurs through their objectification, which is a sexual objectification, which means, which is a thing you become aware of as a woman, right? And I think, you, I mean, I have another quote from you. Becoming a woman is discovering that our own body belongs to men's gaze even before it's fully ours, right? So you have this position where women are aware of their objectification, but then contribute to it, right? Yes, and I think that's where there is really alienation is that the problem is that if your body is first seen by men before being yours mm -hmm. if if you're like cat cold in the street before you can even start being horny or having sexual fantasies etc then of course your relationship to your own body is very weird and then you don't know when when you engage in in love or sexual relationships with men you can wonder do they like me or do they like this body or who, who am I? Like, am I? And, and so of course we are, and we have a body and, and Bova is very clear about this, but the problem is that our relationship with our own body is mediated by the fact that it belongs to men before belonging to us. And that systematically, you don't know if you work on your body, like, are you becoming thin and uh, are you putting makeup, et cetera, because you like your body that way or because you like the way it's looked at? And I think for for the American listeners, especially, like there was a big uh, drama around an ad by Peloton last year. So Peloton mm -hmm. is this new um, bike to exercise at home that became so uh, popular during the pandemic and and the, the ad was a woman who was saying that her husband got her peloton and 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 a lot of feminists said oh it's horrifying because it shows that the man is forcing her to uh, work out and i have friends who actually own pelotons who say no but i'm really uh, working out for myself like it's so wrong to say that showing a woman who works out is saying that she works out for the man. But the problem is, how do we know? If the entire culture is telling us, you need to be sexy that way, you need to be strong, but not too strong, slim, but not skinny, have big boobs, but not 
like big thighs, etc. Like, how do you know if you're working out for yourself? So I'm saying, in saying this, I'm saying we can't. It's it's too easy to tell women who work out and who think they do it for themselves. Oh, you're in false consciousness. You don't realize that it's patriarchy that makes you do so. But at the same time, it is very likely that it is patriarchy that makes you do so. <laughs> well, and both of these things can exist. You can be working out. Yeah. You can think that you're working out for yourself, but you're also well aware or maybe even not aware that what you're doing has that has to do with having internalized these body standards that are ludicrous, which are only being made worse by pornography, obviously, um, you know, and the like ready access to pornography and unattainable bodies and unattainable and un unenjoyable sex acts. I mean, obviously, right. Um, and I think about the porn, I think there is one stat that is um, that I should find the source of again. But I read that something like 20% of women actresses in mainstream porn use some sort of local anesthesia, anesthesia for the shooting. And I think this is something that should be talked about more because yes, this is impossible for it to work without a tremendous amount of pain on the woman's side. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and drugs and, I mean, and cuts and there, there are like people who's, who work on porn sites to make, make it look as if this is possible when of course it is not. Um, that is a different book. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's then this question, the question of how women contribute is, are women contributing to their own submission? I think we probably have talked about that enough and we're running out of time. So I've, I've been like, I've got your conclusion is titled what now? And so that is my penultimate question for you. What now? So I think there is an emancipatory um, effect of just having the concept of submission because it allows you to look at yourself in a way that shows you what you do and how you participate into patriarchy. But this is of course limited because, and, and, and has negative effects because it can just have the result of making you feel guilty that you can't fight patriarchy more and that you're, you're just um, yeah, a victim of patriarchy and what can you do with that? So I think we need institutional changes and we need social changes. We need much more um, policies that are um, favoring gender equality, um, that are uh, putting into questions the norms of motherhood, the norms of um, sexuality. Um, so right now, I'm I'm working, I'm I'm writing this book on sexual consent because precisely I think sexuality is a place where things need to be done, and I think one thing that needs to be done is to change the way we conceive of sexuality in general. And instead of thinking this is something where we give permissions beforehand and then it's a sort of black box that is private, say no, like what sexuality is, is that it's a form of communication and a form of conversation. And we just converse on another level than the normal conversations we have with each other. And so we need to think of sex as a conversation that has rules of how the conversation can work and what makes this conversation moral 
and one of them is respect. And so we need to build respect into our sexuality script. Um, so that's one of, of the things that I think need to be changed. And so it's not enough. I mean, I'm, I'm all for the only yes means yes, uh, view of consent, but this is not enough women. And, and especially because since women are taught submission, they are taught to say yes, even when they're not sure and say yes to please the man or to say yes because they think they, can't say no, they will look like a frigid bitch. And so like, it's only mm. through a real conversation that we will manage to have to reach a level of equality in sexual encounters and, and hopefully a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and I think that actually this conversation leads into my next question, my ultimate question, which is also what's next, but in uh, the other way, like what, so what are you working on? It's been what? three years since this book was published in France. So you've had three years, a couple, um, and obviously you've also been busy in other aspects of your life in those three years, but, uh, you know, what are you working on? What's, what are we going to see next from you? So actually, um, it's been three years, but not really because I, as I said, I did yeah. the translation of the book and I kind of wow. rewrote it in a certain mm-hmm. extent. So I, I, I've been working on that more, I'm, I'm working on, on different papers on, on submission and, and how submission is a form of rationality because I think it's, it's important to, to frame it like this. But yeah, I've been uh, writing this book on, on sex and consent. And I, um, I think in the English speaking world, a, a lot of work has been done on this in, in the French speaking world way less. And I'm trying to think about a new sexual politics like mm-hmm. what um after kate millet i don't know like 60 years after kate millet what is sexual politics today and and um and do people have do, like how do we deal with men's entitlement to sex how do we deal with these um norms of submission in sexuality and and yeah and what should be done on a moral level on a political level and on a legal level Sure. Excellent. This is, that's fascinating work. And the concept, um, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of consent and what, you know, that how that inherently suggests that there is, there is someone who's withholding, there is someone who's demanding, like that just so reaffirms this kind of, the idea of women's submission, I think. And uh, I'm really interested to see what happens there. That'll be great. Thank you very much. Uh, cool. This like I, I can't. I'm going to say it again. I can't say it enough. I loved the book. I loved it. It was such a joy to read. Um, and there'll be things that I continue to read. It helped already in like my own thinking. Um, and I can't encourage my our listeners enough to go buy it. Like go buy the book. Go read the book. Get this book. Um, and I really, really did want to pull this in under four, like in 45 minutes, but it's been 70 and I'm sorry about taking so much of your time, of your very limited childcare time, but thanks so much for talking to me. And uh, I will be, we'll be uh, scheduling an interview as soon as we see the new work on consent. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye.